Hello, I'm Alex Mosed, and we're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents, and where this is all netting out. Uh, so today, jump on into it. The uh, first thing we're going to talk about here is that there's been some recent chatter uh, by my friend Ben Thompson uh, over at Stratechery, and this notion has started to kind of pick up speed um, where it's just more Uber um, bashing, basically. And so his recent, um, uh, you know, uh, um, kind of newsletter article that came out was saying, you know, Uber isn't a taxi company and they're not a tech company here. Um, and I love you, Ben, but we're just going to have to disagree on this one. So he says, you know, so what of Uber itself? It's not a taxi company, but is it a tech company? I says, I suggested it was a few weeks ago, but now if you look at this highlighted part, I've changed my mind. Um, I was right to mention Uber's costs uh, da, da, and wrong to dismiss them and call Uber a tech company. At the same time, Uber clearly has no analog in the physical world. It is neither um, and new and, and driver and Uber's drivers um, <laughs> help explain why. So then he goes on to analyze basically Uber's financials and to try and put them in the rider's perspective. Basically, if you look at this chart uh, and joined by Nick Johnson, co-author uh, with me on Modern Monopolies. So this chart is showing from the rider perspective, right, Nick? This is basically GMV, this revenue number from rider's perspective, $15.57 billion is really just GMV, total throughput on Uber Eats and Uber ride sharing. Literally on the last winner take all episode, we just spoke, went over these numbers about how Uber is undervalued on the stock market today. Um, and so this analysis, this cost of revenue, gross profit, gross margin, what is this really showing? Well, I think Ben's point here was try to say Uber has low margins, so it's not a tech company because it doesn't have SaaS-like margins. Here's the problem. You're comparing apples to oranges. SaaS companies, uh, when you have gross sales, it's the same thing as revenue. With a marketplace, gross sales does not equal revenue. So this is a, uh, I would say, basic accounting mistake uh, to say that these things are apples to apples. They're not. They're very different. And uh, you need to approach and understand basically marketplace accounting and understanding how you recognize revenue uh, where you basically recognize revenue as net sales, meaning sales minus the cost of uh, the take rate that you don't keep. To say that Uber, which has roughly a 20-ish percent take rate, uh, is a low margin company because it only has a 20% take rate, which is what this uh, essentially chart is showing, is that Uber only takes you know 20-ish percent of the GMV, would be like saying Android isn't a tech company because it only takes 30% and it has to give up 70%. Because and then it has low margins if you compare it to a uh, a SaaS company which has much higher gross margins uh, because that's not really what gross margin is for a platform business that's just the take rate and you're calling revenue something that isn't revenue. Well, I think there's a couple there's a couple things here. One, he's saying that um, because Uber, we talk a lot about how Uber is a commoditized service marketplace, right? And that means that if if you are a commoditized marketplace, you could have you could be a commoditized product marketplace or a service marketplace. All that means is that if you look at the value that's being created from the supply side of that ecosystem, it is 
commoditized in the sense that there's really only a handful of variables that determine what that value is worth to the consumer. And if you are a platform and you are facilitating a commoditized transaction like Uber, so what, how many variables influence what that Uber ride should charge, right? It is the platform's role to remove that friction from the transaction and provide that ease of use to both sides, to the consumer and to the producer, to the passenger and to the driver. And so in this case, they are a price setter. And there's actually a myriad of examples of a variety of very successful commoditized service marketplaces um, beyond just Uber. It doesn't mean that your platform is commoditized uh, and the business model is bad because you operate in a commoditized marketplace environment. It just means that if you are facilitating the exchange of a commoditized service or product, for that matter. You need to standardize it a lot more. You need to standardize more. Right. You need to pr- rip out that friction, be a price setter in What's this example. What's an example, example of a non-commoditized service marketplace? Something like Airbnb, where you're renting out a bunch of rooms and there's a ton of different characteristics uh, based on you know where are you going, what price range are you looking at, what amenities do you want, does it have a dog, does it have air? There's a, there's a bunch of different things that you might be looking for, which is why Airbnb does not standardize and set the price. It might provide you a little bit of guidance, but every listing is separate. There's no basically automatic experience that says, I'm going to Texas, give me a home. Right. What so are some, what are some other commoditized, commoditized service marketplace examples? Uh, Handy is a good one in the US to home services. Uh, there's a big home services marketplace in China called uh, Ella.me. Um, uh, Alibaba has a huge logistics marketplace in China, uh, as well. I don't remember the name off the top of my head. I think it's, uh, Kiao no or something like that. Apologies for butchering that name, right. but it starts with a C. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of these, there's a company called Manbang, which has a trucking marketplace in China. There's house and home polish and the interior design space. Yeah. All it means is that you're primarily the one attribute is that you're setting the rate for the service provider. And I think to Ben's point is that because they are setting the rate, the ability for the driver to move on or off, say Uber to Lyft, for example, there's a lot lower switching costs to go from one platform to the other. So the platform has to spend all this money kind of acquiring or reacquiring or retaining these users. I, I think he's saying there's less lock in. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. If you compare, uh, you know, Uber to Airbnb, the uniqueness of the inventory on Airbnb makes that uh, network effect stronger. Uh, whereas on Uber versus Lyft, if you have the drivers, you have the drivers. Not you know, I need this particular kind. Um, and the other flip side of that, it also makes it harder to build that network because you need to get all the different types of inventory to cater to different types of consumers. And then you also have the problem of someone being able to peel away particular parts of that network. So you have people that have created marketplaces going after just high-end listings for Airbnb, for example. And it's going to be tough for Airbnb to compete directly against that because they're not catered just to that consumer. So there's strengths and weaknesses ultimately to each model. I don't think there's a right model. It really depends on what is the market you're in and what is that service. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I'm not really sure what he's trying to get at with this, but I mean, all, all he really needs to do on this chart is in, in, at the top here, above $2,768,000,000, uh, just put GMV right above it. And that's the $15.57 billion. And now you have a complete picture where you say, 
The total amount of throughput going through the platform is $15.5 billion. Lyft, by the way, does not disclose this number anymore, which is much fishier than, say, Uber. Uber's not trying to hide any of this. They're actually right. much more transparent than their competitor, Lyft. So if you, if you look at Uber, they have, they have a cost of revenue light on them, which some marketplaces don't break out very well. Uh, so Uber has been pretty transparent about this. There looks, if you look at that, their GMV uh, it was 15 billion. Their revenue is what, like two and a half, and their gross margin. If you look at cost of revenue versus revenue, roughly 50 percent. Not a bad margin for a marketplace. Yeah, I don't think. Um, and and okay, and so basically, then what you're looking at is what is the take rate of this business, right? And and as Ben even points out here, they're they're rolling in things like um, insurance and other things that are uh, coupled right. in that go into that cost, um, go into that fee to to the driver, right? Yeah, and but w- what I would say is that to look at GMV, look at the take rate, and then also stack cost of revenue on top of that, and then call that basically gross margin is an accounting mistake when you're looking at marketplaces. That's not the correct way to look at it, right? And but so what you should be looking at is, is this, you actually actually say, okay, what is Uber's take rate today? And actually Uber in their, um, in their quarterly earnings report, they talk about this thing called contribution margin. So they're actually providing a lot of transparency. And basically what they're saying is that, Hey, over time, we are going to be able to increase our take rate. At the expense of drivers, right? We and and Uber and Lyft have both said this in their earnings calls that the kind of brand affinity is now leveling the playing field, and they are spending less money on driver retention incentives. and yeah. and incentives, and so that's going down. Both platforms are happy about that. Right. There's two ways they can make more money. One is, or three. One is raising prices on customers, which they tend not to do. Two is raising the take rate on drivers, which if you look historically uh, over you know, what Uber used to charge when it started out early on versus where it is now when it gets market power in a particular market, it goes up. And I would expect that to continue uh, to improve the health of its business, particularly as it starts to mature in some of these emerging markets, which is where it loses a lot of money. Lever three is uh, customer acquisition costs, particularly driver acquisition costs, and bringing those costs down. And I think you've started to see that come down as both Uber and Lyft They've both gone public. They're no longer just kind of lighting VC money on fire anymore. They have to be responsible to public shareholders. And they've both publicly stated they're scaling back basically driver incentives uh, to try to put both of them try to push toward profitability. Well, and they can get away with that because they have market power. They have market power. There's really only two dominant marketplaces in in ride sharing. There's a few more in um, in the, the food marketplaces. Right. But certainly in ride sharing, there's two players. And so even if the, the drivers switch back and forth, they're only really switching back between one or two players. Maybe there's a small regional player like, I don't even know Juno. if Juno's still around in New it's York. It's around, but it's just doesn't have very big it's market It's dying share. and yeah. hemorrhaging money. A lot of people like to say, oh, Uber lost $5 billion this, you know, in a quarter. That's an accounting metric. What, what happens when you have options and employees and you go public and need to register that at expense. Actually, look at this. The losses are decreasing, or at least have from you know the past couple quarters into the Q2 here. So I don't understand why everyone is, is trying to gang up against Uber um, and say they're not a tech company and all these kinds of things. It's just so the, the other uh, part of Uber's I think they're losses, gonna lose on that. 
other part of Uber's losses that's important is a lot of where that's coming is overseas in growth markets. Not mm-hmm. as much of it is coming in the U.S. where they have many more mature markets uh, with essentially stable uh, patterns where they don't have to boost driver incentives and things to get into new markets because they have these hyper-local network effects. And I think you're going to see over time as Uber either exits new markets where they're not successful or sells their operations like they've done in China uh, or gangs dominant market share in some of these markets, and there's consolidation inevitably in these markets as we've seen happen in the U.S., uh, some of those expenses are going to come down, and I think that I'm optimistic that they both Uber uh, and Lyft will start to push more toward profitability in the next few years. Yeah, I think, again, I think Uber is a great buy. And um, I, I just, I, there's there's ulterior motives here, as, I think, as to why people are, you know, so negative on them and, and all these kinds of things. So there's this thing called World of Warcraft. <laughs> Um, and World of Warcraft relaunched their game recently, right? And um, they relaunched the classic version of it, which is basically uh, World of Warcraft or WoW, as most people call it, uh, is been around for like, I don't know, 15 years. Yep. I played it and was very good at it when I was in college, in high school. Uh, and it's been around since, yeah, I think at least around years. 15 years. Yep. And they relaunched the classic version. So this is basically they've released expansion packs like mm. every year that cost 30 bucks or whatever. And there's a bunch of updates. This rolled back a server to the original basically version of it that came out 15 years ago mm. or 14 and a half years ago before the first expansion. So they opened a server in Taiwan. And and what this Bloomberg article was saying is that <laughs> the Taiwan server has become an unlikely virtual space where young people from mainland China... Uh, can come and interact with people from basically outside of China. And so this guy's walking around leveling up his character in World of Warcraft, and he's seeing things like liberate Hong Kong in in the general chat, right? So it's thousands of people playing online, and you can then just chat with them openly. So he's seeing liberate Hong Kong, revolution of our times, reply to sorcerer. Um, And then he said, here, I, I observed some other interesting threads. Taiwanese players advise those from Hong Kong to blame the, Ch- the Chinese government rather than verbally abuse ordinary Chinese citizens. Um, one Hong Kong gamer tried to recruit others to join him in a real life demonstration. Yada, yada, yada. So the whole idea is that because of the Great Firewall, which we've spoken about many times now, it's actually very difficult if you're in mainland China to actually engage and have conversation with people outside of China that is not filtered and actively filtered. And we've spoken about that at length as well. And China's actually only getting much more aggressive in the regulation and, and patrolling of that uh, moderation. So basically what this guy is saying, but didn't spell it out that explicitly is Blizzard snuck this through the Chinese government. My prediction is this thing is going to get shut down. In like a week or two. Blizzard's been operating in China for a long, long time, and they've had to make concessions. Like there's certain character classes that they had to uh, change the graphics for and change the name for so they could get them into basically WoW China, which is a separate game. <laughs> they've been operating in China, but the ability right. for mainland Chinese people to interact to with log into a Taiwanese server. Yeah, I would expect some of that's going to go pretty soon. I don't soon. think this is going to be around for much longer. Certainly not after Bloomberg's talking about yeah, it. Yeah, this is getting shut down real quick. Um, which is unfortunate, but it is interesting if you kind of look at how these interactions basically don't happen, um, except for these things that kind of sneak by the great firewall. Um, and it's really interesting. So it's because it's not the same thing as like, I'm on a forum 
and I can right, scan this WeChat. content. Yeah. It's I'm now in a portal playing a video game with a bunch of other people. And then there's this thing called chat that's also a part of the video game. So Right. And the people in, in Taiwan aren't necessarily worried about, say, censors or the government in China and what they're going to think if they hear these messages. So it's I think interesting, uh, interesting cross-pollination. Someone is definitely getting fired over this. Uh, or someone's getting in trouble for this in the in the Chinese regulation authority. That's for sure. Um, so uh, another topic on the theme of tech, reg, or, you know, Chinese kind of tech regulation is that the um, there were these documents that were leaked here. Mm. Um, how TikTok censors videos. So ByteDance owns TikTok. Is ByteDance the most valuable uh, private, private tech, tech company. company in the world. Yeah, I think it's valued about seventy-five billion. Yep, uh, most valuable private tech company I believe in the world. Uh, certainly one in the top top two or three, if not. And yeah, they own uh, TikTok and a and a bunch of things. These are they, content TikTok platforms. TikTok is the Western version of it. There's a version of it in China, basically, that's also hugely popular. In the West, it's called TikTok. So they got these documents. Um, the Guardian did. They got these documents that actually had. Now, written down rules right. that are given to content censors. So you have thousands of people that got to read through this stuff. And you have to build algorithms to try and filter it and surface it for humans to then, you know, uh, filter, say, one some of the more confusing messages. And so they have these documents that actually spell out all the rules. And so the documents spell out two types of violations. <laughs> one violation is you talk, you spoke about something so bad that not only is your post coming down, but we are probably going to ban your personal account. That's uh, violation one. Violation two is this thing called visible to self, which means that your post is still up, but we basically just shadow ban you. Right. So no one else is going to see your post. You still see it. So you don't know it's been banned, but no one else is going to see it. No one else is going to see it. Algorithm's not picking it up. Right. So we're not necessarily penalizing your account permanently. But that one post has basically been muted from anyone else seeing it. So it's uh, it's really interesting in terms of how they spell out these things. And basically what this document or what this article is saying is that, um, I mean, the Chinese are very smart. That's absolutely for sure. And they 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 bucket their Chinese specific things they don't want talked about, like the Tiananmen Square incidents. Um, or Tibet and Taiwan and these kinds of uh, sensitive areas for the Chinese. And then they couch that into other things from other countries like Cambodian genocide or the 1998 riot, riots of Indonesia, which China doesn't care about. But what they're doing is kind of, it's... Um, Making it seem like it's not China specific. Exactly. Yes, it's We're other avoiding things. sensitive topics. Exactly. So they're saying, oh, well, this isn't just about China. We're just trying to create a friendly environment. But by the way, you can't talk about Tiananmen Square. Um, or the Hong Kong protests. I think there was- a, Or the Hong the, Kong the, protests. Uh, there was also, I think, an article, might have been in Bloomberg or something like that recently, where they were basically talking about TikTok and why couldn't they find anything? And they were on TikTok, I think, in Hong mm, Kong. Why yeah. could they find- Nothing related to the Hong Kong protests there. If you were on TikTok in Hong Kong, you would have no idea that this was happening. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, a, a proof positive yeah, a that this is happening. A Washington Post report earlier this month noted that the search for the site had barely revealed barely a hint of unrest in sight when you searched for Hong Kong. So 
it's clearly happening. The Chinese know it's happening. Everyone knows it's happening. Now there's some documents to prove that it's happening. So, okay. Um, the CEO of eBay, Devin Wenig, is no longer the CEO of eBay. He stepped down. He had been CEO for at least, I want to say, like six or seven, maybe eight years. He was there for a while, oversaw the PayPal spin out, all that kind of stuff. He was overseeing the marketplace, too. He was running the marketplace, which is the most profitable part of eBay. Yeah, he's been there for eight years. Not CEO for eight years, but he's been the company for eight years. He was overseeing the marketplace, which is the most important part of eBay. Makes sense. And um, so now he's out. Why is he out? Well... There's uh, some of these activist investors, one called Elliot, which we've also been talking about recently. If you uh, AT&T, AT&T, we were just talking about and um, Elliot. And I think I want to say Starbird Capital here. uh, Is the other activist investor. Um, Interestingly enough, Starbird. Is the same one. Remember we were talking about cars.com, how cars.com has lost like 70% of its value because it had an activist investor come in and then try and put the company up for sale and then no one wanted to buy it. And then it's talk went literally through the floor. Oh yeah. That was the group starboard. Um, and now Elliot is in there yep. with starboard tag team. Uh, you got this guy, Jesse Cohn, who's 38 years old and the head of activist investing for Elliot. What do they say that eBay should be doing differently? They basically said that eBay should be selling off other marketplaces, StubHub yes. and right. these other things. I just. I just don't know. I just. I honestly struggle to see that as being the silver bullet. No, definitely not. (laughs) That that because they're selling tickets and maybe like eBay autos or something they were saying to sell off. I just I just don't I also don't think I don't see how StubHub, if spun off, is gonna be stronger without eBay. Or, you know, I guess they want like Ticketmaster to buy it or something, but but again, Ticketmaster already has so much leverage. Um I don't know. I just I struggle to see even though AT&T has a lot of problems, even what Elliot's saying to do in AT&T, it just doesn't all seem that feasible or ter- too terribly strategic. It's saying, hey, you've underperformed. Um, yeah, you probably shouldn't have bought Time Warner for $100 billion. But what are you going to do? Spin it off? You just bought the company. So right. how is that going to be more creative? Maybe you need a different CEO. Because this CEO shouldn't have bought them. I completely agree with that um, in, in AT&T's case. But oh, the strategy about yeah. what to do different, you know, or what to do now, I wouldn't necessarily agree with. Well, in AT&T, think, I'd say different CEO. Here, I don't really see it with eBay. If I had to guess, it would be a pessimism about the basically long-term success or growth of the business. So let's basically pick apart the parts and get a short-term return for investors. Um, that would be my guess on the rationale. I think if I'm looking at uh, you know, eBay from a you know owner kind of point of view and want this business to succeed long term. I'm not sure how this is going to help all that much. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't. Which is probably why the CEO decided to leave. Yeah. Makes sense. I, I, I think this is, um, I think this is a loss for eBay. I, I don't yeah. think this is a, a, a good turn of events for them. So, okay. So next topic here is, uh, you know, growth in, in, 
B2B e-commerce. So there's been a lot of, there's been some interesting articles that have come out recently talking about small, medium-sized business customers, maybe maybe business customers from all sizes, but, but surveying people's likelihood to use e-commerce more in a B2B buying situation. So that would be, um, which of the following marketplaces do you want to use when you research and purchase B2B products? Amazon here is the clear winner. Um, notice you see nothing from um, the the large incumbent e-commerce uh, or e distributors because, well, A, they're not marketplaces. You can see that represented here. Um, over 50% of the buyers complete more than 10% of their B2B buying on Amazon business today. Today, not planning to, but already do. Um, so you can see here, this is one, one to 10% of people or one to 10% of their purchases, 37% of people, but, um, 20% of them are doing either 11 to 25% or 26 to 49%. And you actually have 12% of them are doing over 50% of their buying on just Amazon business. These numbers are kind of scary to me. Um, Marketplace buyers expect to spend even more on Amazon business. How do you expect your Amazon business volume to change over the next year? Um, <clears throat> 3% of people said it's going to go down. 42% uh, said the same. So that means 55% said it's going to increase. And basically 29% of them said it's going to go up by at least 10% or more. I mean, these are pretty material numbers. Yeah. I mean, what it says to me is one, the marketplace value prop when it's working is resonating very well with B2B customers. There was a lot of, uh, I would say kind of hedging or, you know, Amazon can't do it in B2B, B2B customers don't want to buy from a marketplace and all this kind of stuff. That's clearly not true. And it's the proportion of B2B customers that want to buy on Amazon is just going to continue to grow or want to buy in this marketplace experience going to continue to grow. So if I'm a traditional distributor that is looking at, oh, I think, you know, my traditional relationship-based business is going to uh, do fine. I can just layer on an e-commerce website and I'm going to compete. I would be concerned seeing this. The thing I would take as positive is, hey, if I'm looking at launching my own B2B marketplace, there's a big opportunity here. There's a lot of customers that want this value proposition. That number is growing. How can I get a piece of that pie? Yep. Now here's another, here's another report on marketplaces in general. So this is saying of the top 100 marketplaces globally, more than half of them have launched in the last seven years. Now, I feel like that's kind of counterintuitive. You wouldn't necessarily think that these are product marketplaces, right? But, you know, you think Amazon launched in 1994. Oh, if I haven't launched a marketplace by 2019, there's no room. I would say this is actually directly contrary to that. And certainly in B2B marketplaces, we're seeing a huge opportunity to build these B2B marketplaces. Yeah. And that's just in the US, by so the way. Where are these marketplaces popping up though? It's not like everyone is creating another Amazon. It's these vertical specific marketplaces that are popping up like an Etsy, like a Poshmark, like uh, a StockX that are going after a specific vertical. They're not huge generalists like, say, a Walmart trying to be that now or an Amazon because the cost to compete with an Amazon or an Alibaba internationally is too big. But you can go in and serve a particular product category, 
or a particular type of customer, even within a particular product category, if that category happens to be big enough. Right. And you can win now, and I you would can say create a great business. You can do vertical specific from scratch in B2B. I oh, don't yeah. think you can do organic, build a new marketplace in B2C vertical it's, it's specific unless you have a boatload of money. Like right, I'm saying like hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, like a Walmart. But I'd say it's, it's very difficult if you're trying to do one today from scratch in B2C, vertical specific, unless there's a super, super, super niche market that you're able to capture capture right. somehow. Um, I'd say most, most of those opportunities, at least for this kind of generation of technology, the low-hanging fruit is gone at this stage. It, in there, B2C. There are... Dominant or just some or entrepreneurs in, B2C, in a garage. In yes. B2C, the, the, those low-hanging fruits have been captured. They're either our dominant marketplaces or ones that are well on their way to being there. And it's going to be very hard and very expensive to play catch-up. In B2B, things are much, much earlier. And there is definitely that opportunity to actually go launch these things and scale them successfully, particularly if I have the advantages of a large distributor. To oh, do well, if you, if you have a large incumbent, you could probably still do this in B2C. But yes, that's a whole other story. I'm saying organically, few people in a garage, I wouldn't do it on B2C. In B2B, I think you absolutely could, what you're saying, vertical specific. Um, I think, I mean, look at this stat. This is Amazon Marketplace holistically. Um, this is saying 25,000, at least 25,000 sellers with a million dollars in sales or more. I mean, that's astounding to me. At least 200,000 with sellers with $100,000 in sales or more. And 2.5 million total sellers with products. I mean, these are, the scale here is beyond what any traditional retailer could ever comprehend. I think just having a couple hundred thousand SKUs for them is a lot, let alone having 200,000 sellers that are making six figures in, in revenue top line. They have here 900,000 new sellers on Amazon Marketplace in 2019. This is globally, but that's almost a million new sellers in a year. So when we're saying Macy's and these retailers are announcing, oh, we have you know, a few hundred thousand new SKUs. Right. The the scale of where <laughs> Amazon you need has as to many be, sellers as you're now more sellers than you're right. announcing. Amazon's SKUs. adding more sellers right. than you're adding SKUs right. in a year. Not good. And and SKU layman's terms, by the way, is stock keeping unit. Just think about it as like products, product pages on on the marketplace, right? Um, so now if you're adding if you're adding almost a million sellers, how many SKUs do you think Amazon's adding every year, right? I mean, the numbers of this are just phenomenal. So um, there's more research to come on this, but um, B2B marketplace and, and consumer tendency to buy on B2B marketplaces, it's just the beginning. We're not even, it's not even the tip of the iceberg. I mean, B2B distribution is easily the largest industry in the United States economy. It's at least $6 trillion. I've seen reports of $8 trillion. Some people yeah. say more. What is healthcare? Healthcare is about 15% of the US GDP. US GDP is $20 trillion. Okay, that gives you $3 trillion in healthcare. What is consumer retail? $2.5 trillion. I mean, the size of B2B distribution is so large. And the dearth of B2B marketplace startups is the other astounding fact that we've talked about many times on the show about how there's just, there's such a vacuum of marketplace startups in B2B 
as compared to what we see in B2C. And there's a lot of reasons why that is. But the point is, there's tremendous opportunity, even if you're just a few entrepreneurs in a garage, in school, coming out of school, whatever it is, leaving a job. Um, B2B distribution has a, a plethora of opportunity. Um, and Amazon has a head start. But it, they're not um, undefeatable by any means. Or certainly, you could still be the strong number two um, in, in many scenarios. And still, I'd say number one is up for contention in, in a lot of these vertical specific markets within B2B. So much more to come on this. Uh, that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining. And we will talk to you next week. Have a good weekend.